Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. If you're the autocratic leader of a middling-sized country, the world has changed a lot as America has disengaged from the world stage. Despots can collude a little better, stay in power longer, and even simply snub the now-absent world policemen. And a lot of languages simply don't have a word for blue, or have just one word for both blue and green. Call it GRU. Some clever research has now looked into how the natural world seems to have shaped these GRU languages. First up, though. Across big economies, prices are rising. Bei der Inflation, die derzeit mit 4,5 Prozent From Britain to Germany, Canada to Australia, inflation is reaching levels not seen in decades. But it's particularly bad in the world's largest economy, America's. The personal consumption expenditures, a price index that officials will publish today, will only put numbers to what American consumers already know. Prices are up sharply. The index is expected to have increased by 4% over the past year, its highest level in three decades. Today we're launching a major effort to moderate the price of oil. In one quick fix announced yesterday, President Joe Biden said America would release oil from its national reserve. An effort that will span the globe in its reach and ultimately reach your corner gas station, God willing. China, Japan, India, South Korea and Britain all followed suit. But is this problem made by America, or is America just suffering a bad case of what other countries have got? I know this answer is not going to be terribly satisfactory, but I really think it is a little bit of both. Simon Rabinovich is The Economist's U.S. economics editor and is based in Washington. I think up until now, the conversation has largely centered on the global dimensions of it. And virtually every country in the world, especially in the advanced world right now, is dealing with quite a lot of inflation. The common feature to all these places is that the pandemic has just thrown the global economy into a really messy state. Supply chains are badly snarled. Labor markets globally are extremely tight, partly because people, especially in contact-intensive service sectors like restaurant work, are still reluctant to return to their jobs. But there is a peculiar American dimension that has to be explained as well, which is that inflation is now running hotter in America than in any other wealthy country. If you look at it on a two-year basis, so comparing prices today to where they were two years ago before the pandemic struck, 
They're up nearly 8% in America. That's more than two percentage points higher than anywhere else in the G7 group of rich countries. And what do you think it is that, that makes America stand out so much on that measure? Well, I think the unique thing about America's response to the pandemic was just how incredibly prompt and forceful it was. You know, you began with stimulus checks being mailed to individual Americans back in early 2020. And that continued through to Mr. Biden's American Rescue Plan in early 2021. And at the same time, the Federal Reserve, the American Central Bank, has presided over a very, very loose monetary policy. It's been buying bonds and other assets to the tune of nearly $120 billion a month. Real interest rates, which means looking at interest rates and then adjusting for inflation, are now deep into negative territory in America, which means that there's still a lot of monetary easing, a lot of accommodation that's being pumped through the financial system. And all of this has added up to a great big boom in retail sales. If you look at spending on durable goods, so things like refrigerators, cars, furniture, it's nearly one third higher than it was this time in 2019, far outpacing increases in other big economies. So is that to say that all of those policies that put all of that money into the economy were mistakes? No, it doesn't. I think if you just look at American policies, what they've done for the American economy, I think it's also possible to construct a narrative, a very plausible and persuasive one, that in fact they've been very good for the economy. If you look at the speed of the recovery, and so I think that's a really, really strong indication that America was right to push as quickly as it did to support demand, to support income, and to ultimately make sure that, in economic terms at least, the pandemic did not lead to a great big disaster or to a financial crisis. But what about current conditions now that we're in a kind of a recovery phase? What about this giant bill going through Congress now that that represents a trillion more in spending? Right. So there's two big bills. One that just went through Congress, which is $500 billion plus in new spending on infrastructure. And then the other one is the potentially $2 trillion, probably a little bit less than that, spending on a, a series of social security plus climate priorities of the Biden administration. Critics of the Democrats, even some critics within the Democrats, warn that this is a huge amount of money to be spending at a time when inflation is already high. It's only going to lead to yet more price pressures. I think those are arguments are quite disingenuous. If you look at the amount of spending, it's going to be spread out over the course of a decade. That's not really going to move the needle in terms of inflation. So politically, inflation has become a big problem for the Biden administration, and it's become a challenge as they try to push this very ambitious social spending bill through Congress. Economically, though, I don't think the bill is going to be a problem. Okay, then how can America fix the problem that it's got, though? Well, it's a tricky one. If you look at the kinds of policies that Biden has been doing, it's more performative than substantive. It's talking about investigating the oil and gas companies for price collusion, releasing some oil from America's oil reserves. These are things that might at the margins be a little bit helpful, but they don't tackle the fundamental issue, which is the amount of stimulus and monetary easing in in the American economy right now. What is happening that I think is more important is, number one, the big stimulus policies to lift the economy out of the pandemic 
have basically all expired at this point. And then in terms of monetary policy, the Federal Reserve has begun to reorient itself towards a tightening of monetary policies. Its monthly purchases of assets, it's begun to scale those back. That probably is setting the stage for it to raise interest rates around the middle of next year. Jerome Powell has just been reappointed for a second term as Fed chair. It's possible that now he'll be relatively more unencumbered, not concerned about the political process of his renomination. And this might give the Fed, Powell himself, more space to push for a slightly more aggressive tightening of monetary policy. And so those are the prescriptions that, that seem clear from here. Do you think that would be enough to, to fix the problem that America and, and increasingly the world have? Well, I think there still is a very optimistic scenario to, to portray here, which is that the Fed is beginning to tighten as the global economy gradually returns to something like normality. You'll begin to have some of these supply chain disruptions resolving themselves. And so it is possible that kind of by the middle of next year, we'll look back at inflation as, God, that was such a 2021 story. Things are back to normal now. But the fact of the matter is The Fed and I'd say most other economists have consistently underplayed the threat of inflation to date. The pressures have gotten broader uh, and higher. And if that continues through until next year, then there's also a very worrying scenario, which is inflation getting only higher. Central banks, the Fed in particular, having to tighten much more aggressively And when that happens, that is very bad news for the global economy. It potentially would presage a very steep economic slowdown. So there is a positive scenario to be hopeful about, but I think there's also a much more worrying scenario that we all have to keep in mind as well. And Simon, as as one of our inflation obsessives, I know you were on our sister show Money Talks. What did you look into? Well, I'd rather not be an inflation obsessive, but that's just the fact of the matter these days. The episode was called Inflated Expectations. From our data team, we looked at a new alternative index that we've created for measuring inflation. And from China, we heard about why huge price swings globally aren't actually showing up in China's data just yet. I'll I'll take a look for that wherever fine podcasts are vigorously injected into economies. Simon, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Every day, you get to hear from us, but we'd also like to hear from you. What do you like about the intelligence? What could we be doing better? Here's your chance to weigh in. We're running a survey that you can find at economist.com slash intelligence survey. Just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
but Mr. Trump's administration wasn't the first in which America's diplomatic standing suffered. The country's been losing influence or throwing it away for years, and that is encouraging some leaders to act up. As America withdraws from its traditional role as global policemen, if you like, we're seeing a lot of space created for medium-sized powers to flex their muscles. Robert Guest is The Economist's foreign editor. We're seeing much smaller places throwing their weight around, trying to project hard power abroad with a brazenness much greater than we've seen before. Pretty much all the countries we're concerned about are either dictatorships or somewhere on the authoritarian spectrum. Places like Pakistan, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, Iran, Egypt, Belarus. This is not something that Canada and Sweden are doing in a way that's at all troubling. And so if you are one of these autocratic-leaning, mid-sized countries, what's your calculation? America is losing some of its capacity to deter its enemies and reassure its allies. Forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its... George W. Bush's war in Iraq ended in failure. We need to see concrete actions to demonstrate that Assad is serious about giving up his chemical weapons. Barack Obama drew a red line against the use of chemical weapons in Syria and then did nothing when Bashar al-Assad crossed it. ...that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share. Donald Trump openly scorned America's allies. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. And Joe Biden pulled out of Afghanistan and let the Taliban take over. So if you're a medium-sized country, you no longer feel so confident that America will defend you or that it will stop you doing whatever you please. And you say countries feel safe to, to throw their weight around. What does that look like in practice? Look at Ethiopia. Just recently, in August, Samantha Power, America's aid chief, arrived in Ethiopia and asked for an interview with the prime minister. And not long ago, an important official from the world's only superpower would have been given the red carpet treatment. But Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister in Ethiopia, snubbed her. Not only did he not reply, but he appeared on television that day inspecting a military drone, apparently from America's arch enemy, Iran. So he's cuddling up to less preachy friends, if you like. So the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, places that are prepared to well, sell him weapons, lend him money. And that's emboldened him to pursue a ruinous war against rebels from, from the north and indeed rebels from the south. You know, there's at least 50,000 people have been killed, a couple of million have had to flee their homes. It's been a complete disaster. And it's not entirely, but largely a consequence of the fact that he's picked the wrong friends. And so is this just a matter that these countries' leaders are, are finding like-minded people and, and feeling more free to do so? But it's not really about ideology in the old sort of, you know, communism versus liberal democratic capitalism. It's much more that there are a group of autocrats who've realized that they are more likely to remain in power longer if they help each other. So you see really odd bedfellows. Take what's going on in Venezuela. It's got a lot of help from Cuba and Iran. Now, those two countries don't sound like they have anything in common. Cuba, it's run by a sort of mambo-dancing, rum-swilling Marxists, and Iran is run by these austere Shia mullahs. 
But what they have in common is complete contempt for the will of the people that they govern at home, uh, and they're under American sanctions. So the Cubans uh, train the, the Venezuelan secret police in interrogation techniques and how to spy on members of the army so that they can't mount a coup. The Iranians help with the smuggling and sanctions evading. And together, they're able to prop up what is by far the worst government in Latin America. So that's kind of middle-sized powers meddling in another middle-sized power in a way that entrenches the ruling parties in office, but is terrible for the people concerned. And so that's the kind of reason we should worry when when these kinds of countries band together or, or back each other up? Some of these medium-sized countries are asserting hard power to defend plausible or legitimate security concerns. You know, Pakistan really does have security concerns with India. Turkey really does have security concerns with the Kurds. But very often, these, these concerns are exaggerated. And what they've done to supposedly address them it plays very well on television back home. You know, when, when autocratic leaders cloak themselves in the flag, they tend to get applause. But it has negative consequences. So in your view, are there countries that are doing this in a very savvy way? Or is this just a bit of opportunism because America, the, the, the world's policeman, isn't there to intervene? Most of them are quite bad at it. I mean, if you look at the way Saudi and the United Arab Emirates have intervened in Yemen, they really didn't understand the gravity of what they were getting into. They've got bogged down. It's a quagmire. It's cost them lots of lives, and they've made no progress. But there's one or two more experienced middle-sized meddlers, particularly Iran, who've figured out a way of doing it at relatively low cost directly to themselves. So Iran operates a sort of franchise system throughout the Middle East where it will train local militias and you know show them how to make assemble drones and explosives and uh, give them a little bit of seed capital and then largely expect them to become self-financing themselves. So they, they make their money through extortion or smuggling or drug dealing. And so it doesn't cost Iran that much. But it has made them very, very unpopular with everyone else. I mean, Iran has extremely few friends in the world and is under broad sanctions. And the regime is also widely hated by its own people. So it's not a recipe for national success, and it may be a recipe for keeping the regime in charge for a reasonably long time, but it's extremely damaging. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. You know that old factoid that Eskimos have such an intimate knowledge of their environment that they have dozens or hundreds of words for snow? Well, put it out of your mind. First of all, there's no one Eskimo or Inuit language. There are plenty, and they string together lots of little word fragments into longer, more descriptive words. Like if in English, the phrase snow that's turned gray from being walked on repeatedly were just one single word, in casual conversation, the old Eskimo snow thing is simply incorrect. For those in the business of words, it's a little more personal. Among a lot of linguists, the Eskimo snow story has become kind of an example of an embarrassing, exoticizing fairy tale about a little-known culture that's passed around by people who really don't know anything about it. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column about language. It's a classic example of assuming a kind of mystical connection between a language, a land, and the people who live there and their culture. 
But there are more plausible examples of where the environment can shape a language. Like what? What's a real story and not a snow story? We have some evidence that certain rare consonants, which are called ejectives, might be more prevalent at high altitudes as they're purportedly easier to pronounce in low air pressure. An ejective sounds like the difference between ka, which is not ejective, and ka, which is ejective. Another group of linguists has found that languages that use tones on vowels to distinguish one word from another are linked with humid climates. Apparently, humidity might help the vocal cords in creating the tones. But perhaps the most intriguing example is a new link between geography and vocabulary that has been discovered. And what's that link about? Color is the paradigmatic example of a spectrum. There is no clear point at which red becomes orange or yellow, where blue becomes green. So different languages will divide the color spectrum up into different ways. Some languages have just two basic color words, and they essentially mean light and dark, and everything gets lumped into one of those. But in the 1960s, two linguists, Brent Berlin and Paul Kay, found out that if they have a third word, it's almost always red. So you have dark, light, and red. If they have a fourth, it's usually either green or yellow. And if they have a fifth, it's the other one of green and yellow. And usually blue only comes sixth. Why is that, though? Why would blue, which seems like a, forgive me, a a primary color, come last in that list? The guess is that blue doesn't actually occur in nature that often. Besides the sky, which is above us all the time and doesn't need to be referred to by its color that often, and the sea, which is the same thing. So a lot of languages actually have just one term for blue and green, and linguists call this color gru. So we might discuss gru languages that don't have a distinct blue. And what this new study does is break some ground by finding out that there is, in fact, a link between the use of a gru term and the environment, which is namely the amount of sunshine that a place gets. And how does that work? So it turns out that populations who are exposed to lots of sunlight are more likely to talk about gru. In other words, they're more likely to lack a distinct word for blue. One possible reason is that the long-time exposure to ultraviolet light, particularly UVB light, can cause changes in the retina that make it more difficult to distinguish blue from other colors. But some of the links here about humidity or altitude, they sound a little bit like just-so stories. I mean, how sure are we there's a real causal link here? It's really good to be skeptical about this kind of thing because there are lots of databases for geographical factors like heat and light and altitude and longitude and latitude. And you can cross-link those with the center of gravity of a language and just look for random connections that pop out. For example, one study has found that tonal languages are linked with the presence of acacia trees. There's no real obvious causal link there. We can't be certain about the causal link between sunlight and the use of a gru word or the lack of a blue word. But there is this cleanly purported link, the deterioration of the retina, and the link just turned out to be quite statistically strong. So this kind of research means that you have to have a fairly simple variable like the presence or absence of a blue word. But on the bright side, it means that the findings usually are pretty robust because they're fairly straightforward. In other words, you're more likely to wind up with a fun fact that happens to be a fact, unlike, say, our purported link between Eskimos and snowbirds. Thanks very much for joining us, Lane. Thank you. That's 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.